You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Lord, this morning... Good morning, everyone. Children, guess what? You may be dismissed. I know. I thank you. I've been reminding myself all morning... I get the gold star today. All right, as the children are being dismissed, adults, uh, you may flip to the book of Matthew. Now, we are still in chapter 17. We're going to finish it up today. And, uh, boy, this is an interesting passage. Um, I titled this sermon, I don't have to, but I will. Um, And we're going to look at what that might mean uh, in terms of what Jesus did, what we might be doing in our lives. I don't have to, but I will. And it's a mindset, perhaps, that um, we as Christians should embrace fully. I don't have to go the extra mile, but I will. I don't have to give generously, but I will. I don't have to engage someone that is different than me culturally or relationally or physically or whatever reason, but I will. Uh, I don't have to go out of my normal route to uh, do a kind deed for someone, but I will. And so it's that idea of I don't have to, but I will. How great is it as a feeling when someone goes out of their way to do something for you they didn't have to do, you didn't ask them to do, you didn't even necessarily know they were going to do, but they went out of their way and did something just amazing for you. Anybody ever experienced that? Hey, isn't it great? Don't you want to be the one that gets to give that at some point? To live a life that is continually modeled by the, I don't have to, but I will. Um, And not to be be pulled into it, but to give it generously and freely. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You might not think so when we read this passage, but that's what this passage has to do with this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray for the reading of the word, um, and uh, and then we'll go ahead and dive into it. Father, uh, this morning, um, I pray that you'd speak to us loud and clear. I pray that your spirit would fill me so that my mouth would speak your words and not my own. I pray that you'd give clarity to the thoughts that are going on in my heart and mind and that you'd make it abundantly clear what you would have us learn this morning. Father, above all, I hope that we are um, impressed with how you have said, I don't have to, but I will, in regards to our own lives. That's what you've demonstrated to us and you've called us to live. I pray this morning that we'd be changed by the reading of your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You'd stand with me for the reading of the word. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. The temple tax. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half shekel tax went to Peter and said, Does your, pay, does your teacher pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first, saying, Well, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take their toll or their tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Well, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated. 
I approached this passage this week with the typical mindset of what a pastor would look at this passage and go, oh, it's about miraculous provision of financial reasons and God will meet your needs financially. Just go fishing and it will be amazing what you find. And the more I studied this passage, again, it's like scripture's like a parfait, you know, there's layers to it. And, um, and I think Matthew is always focused on the big picture of the kingdom. He is always focused on what does the kingdom of God look like and how does it play out in our lives? And um, yes, God can miraculously provide for us. And time and time again, we might see that play it out in our lives. I know I have. But I think that this passage, Matthew, a tax collector himself, is using this passage to show us something about the kingdom that is very important, about the way Jesus lives towards us and about the way he is calling us to live towards the rest of the world. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. The I don't have to, but I will. Um, First and foremost, I want to talk about this tax situation that we find in the scripture. Verse 24 says this. When they came to Capernaum, because remember, uh, the disciples and Jesus were wandering around in Gentile territory doing ministry for many months. When they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said... "Um, Uh, Is is Jesus going to pay this tax or not? It was politely phrased, but it was hinting at the idea of, you know, he's overdue. You're six months past due, Jesus. That's really what it worked out to be. You're six months past due. Are are you going to pay this tax? Does your teacher pay taxes? So we have to understand that there was a tax at work. Now, this is a tax that was ancient. So we need to understand a little bit about Jewish culture. Matthew speaking to a Jewish audience. They would have understood this. In Exodus 30, this is when the tax was instituted. And here's a summary of it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them will give a ransom for himself to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered shall give a half shekel as a contribution to the Lord. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting. So basically, after Israel was freed from Egypt, God said, I want you to, after you've numbered everyone who is freed, I want everyone who is freed to give a half shekel back so that we can build the temple and the tabernacle. This was something that the... um, People who were freed in Egypt would have done willingly because, hey, we've just been freed. We want to together put into the temple that we're going to worship God at, the God who freed us. We want to help build it. So I'm going to give my half shekel, and they're going to give their half shekel, and we're going to have a temple that's going to be adorned with gold and fitting for the king who has saved us. So this tax was put into effect. It's not so much a tax as we might think of taxes, but as a a collection that went into... Um, gathering up enough for the temple. Now, uh, God asked for it as an acknowledgement and a thank offering, as a ransom is what he called it, for the lives that were rescued from Egypt. Aren't you thankful you were rescued from Egypt? Here, give in to the temple so that you can worship accordingly. It was used in the wilderness to provide the framework, as I said, for the temple and the ornamentation of its pillars. But based on this practice that originated in the wilderness... As it would so happen in Jewish culture, a custom developed over the years that every male Israelite of 20 years of age or older would annually contribute to the temple treasury the sum of half a shekel. Now, the temple was already built, 
But this became a custom that every year, everyone who was 20 or older would give their half shekel, okay? Now, um, Matthew, depending on what you believe about it, I tend to believe this, so this is what I'm going to preach from. I believe this was written after 70 AD, okay? So I believe that there's some history coming into play here. It's important because when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70, the Romans still continued to enforce this tax. They said, well, hey, they're used to paying, so why don't we have them continue to pay? Now, the downside, um, the downside of this, okay, I can hear his voice in my head, can't you? Uh, um, the downside of this is that instead of using the money to fund Jewish religious centers, the Romans used the money to fund the temple of Jupiter, okay? So once where this money went to fund the worship and the adornment of the temple, it became a custom that was just what we do, and then the Romans said, well, we're going to take that, but now we're going to take the money, and we're going to fund our pagan temple with it. So this is the tax that is in question this morning. This is the tax where the tax collectors come to Jesus and say, um, you going to pay or what? And, um, and so there's a lot of political debate going on in this day and age. Should Jews pay this? Should Jews pay for a temple pagan worship system? Is a rabbi going to pay so that people can worship in a false system? Matthew, who was a tax collector himself before following Jesus, probably included this passage for the sake of the Jewish audience who was asking those kinds of questions. Should we give money to a pagan temple? This tax was for um, the Jewish temple originally, and it was taken in March. We're preaching it in March, so how fitting here. This tax was taken in March, and Jesus was six months late. Any of you been late on your taxes before? Have the IRS come knocking on your... You don't have to raise your hand, okay? Um, okay? Any of you ever had a debt where you've had a tax collector come after you? Again, don't raise your hand. But if you've had, you know that moment where you get that phone call or that email, and there's that polite voice that says, we just want to talk to you about your debt because it seems that you're a little overdue. Can we work out a payment plan with you? Can, and they're very nice at first, right? This is what's going on in this first verse. Oh, doesn't your, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? Can we work something out here? It's six months past due. Is, that's significant, right? But Jesus and the 12 had been out of Galilee for the time. They'd been out of country. They were not able to pay for those six months. So here come the tax collectors. Knock, knock, knock on the door of Jesus, literally at his home, at Peter's home where he was staying. Knock, knock, knock. We going to get our money? Um, taxes, they're due. So the friendly tone of the tax collector. Now, this tax had to be paid in Jewish coin, half shekel, okay? This is the half shekel, the front and the back side of the half shekel. The Roman coins were produced. They were highly valued because of the purity of their silver. This is the half shekel coin. Um, it's, um, uh, again, it says up there, required for Jewish males for the temple tax in Jerusalem. This was the coin that was required for every person who is paying the temple tax. I love when you can see the real coin and you kind of get the idea that maybe that coin that is in this picture in the museum, maybe that was one of the ones that was paid in the temple tax because these were the coins that were used for it. So at some point in history, this coin that we're looking at 
probably got paid by someone into the temple tax. I just think that's interesting, connecting, uh, looking at the real life kinds of things. Anyway, this is the half shekel. This is what was paid. Now, um, the money changers in this society set up a thriving business in the temple. Because if you didn't have a Jewish half shekel, you would have to take what you had, go to the money changers, and for a fee, they would exchange your coins and give you your half shekel. But it would cost you. This is um, what happened when Jesus went into the temple that one day and flipped the, coin, or the, the tables over because people were making money off of something that should have been an offering to the Lord. God wasn't very happy about that. They were using this for self-gain. Needless to say, um, Roman government was exercising a tax that once belonged just to the glory of God. Now it was no longer. So that's verse 24. Sets you up for the tax. Um, verses 25 and 26 read like this. Peter answered, yes. Like, what else are you going to say to the tax collector? Does Jesus pay his taxes? Yes. I mean, that's your instinct. And Peter, an impulsive man, automatically said, oh, of course, yes, Jesus pays his taxes. And then he runs back to the house. And when he came back to the house, Jesus, in his knowledge, anticipated what had just happened with Peter and stopped before Peter could say anything, interjected. And he said, um, Peter, what do you think about this? Whom do kings of earth take their toll or tax from? From their sons or from the ones that they rule over? And when Peter said, from the ones they rule over, Jesus said to him, well, then the sons are free. It's a little analogy Jesus was bringing out. Jesus asked Peter to consider it because everyone knew that an earthly king did not tax his own children. They lived in the castle. They actually benefited from the taxes of other people. It was part of the privilege of royalty. When you live in the royal household, you don't pay taxes into the royal coffers. You own the royal coffers. They are yours, right? But all the commoners who lived outside the royal family, any nation that was brought into subjection under a king that won the uh, nation in a battle, they were obligated to pay taxes to that king. They were obligated to pay into the king's wealth. Now today, many governments collect taxes and fees from their own people, just like our own nation, right? But in those days, kings normally only taxed the people that they had conquered, the people of their country, not, their, uh, not their, the citizens of their family. Does that make sense? So the taxation system, a little bit different back in the day. Now, also, priests and Levites were exempt from this temple tax as it was set up because they were the people who worked in the royal house of God. They worked in the temple. They benefited from the meat offerings and the fat offerings. They also did not have to pay this half shekel temple tax because they worked in the temple. They were exempt because they were sons of the temple. Thus, they were not under this law. Okay. Now, um, here's what Jesus is saying to Peter. As Lord of the temple, because he's God, he's the one who lives in the temple. As Lord of the temple, and as the son of the heavenly king, Jesus is saying, I'm exempt. I don't have to pay this tax. I am God. I'm the one who receives the offerings. I'm not the one who pays the half shekel. I'm exempt. So imagine this. Tax collectors come to your door. You're six months overdue. You going to pay? Ah, think about this for a moment. I'm exempt. Thank you very much. I'm not going to pay. Does that go over well in our system? 
No, it doesn't go over very well. Now, um, Jesus, uh, he phrased it very nicely, but he basically said this, um, I'm the son of God. I'm exempt from paying this tax. He was freed from the demands of the law because he was the one who had established the law. And he was also saying this, if you are a son of God, you are exempt from this tax as well. If you are a son of God, you are exempt from paying the temple tax because you are under the new law, the new covenant in Jesus, not the old covenant. You are no longer subject to the things that are of old. Jesus says, I have brought a new kingdom about and you don't have to pay that tax anymore. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall because to see the tax collector's face during this conversation would have been absolutely fantastic. If God's people are freed from paying the tax for temple upkeep, then they are also freed from the sacrifices that were to be made in the temple. Jesus, in this moment, is saying something really specific about the kingdom of God. Not only was it coming, but it is now here. Jesus is saying, I am about to die for the sins of the world. All of the other sacrifices don't matter anymore. I'm the sacrifice that matters. All of the other taxes that you pay, you don't need to pay those anymore. No longer do you need to take something to the temple and one priest has to take it behind the veil because in just short order, the veil is going to be torn and all of the sins of the world are going to be forgiven. No longer must taxes be paid. That's really good news for the people who owed the tax debt that were past due and for those of us who live under Jesus. He virtually implies that I am the son of God, as you, Peter, have acknowledged. And if the tax is for the house of God, whom I am a son of, I don't have to pay it anymore. I am not paying tribute to my father, is what he's saying. Looked at in its original nature, this offering we read in, in Exodus, or Exodus, yeah, in Exodus, um, was an offering of atonement, right? God said, use this offering as an atonement to be paid as the ransom for your freedom from Egypt. How could Jesus give money in ransom for himself? He was the one who had come to ransom others. Why should he ransom himself from sin and death? He had come to take away sin and destroy death for others. It does not make sense for Jesus to pay this tax. Christ is openly asserting his messianic divinity in this passage. To pay this tax without explanation, after stating his divinity, might cause confusion in the minds of his disciples. Well, if he is the son of God, if he is Jesus, if he is the ransom for our souls, why is he paying? Do we still have to pay? Do we follow him and the law? Jesus is saying there should be no confusion in the life of a believer. You follow Jesus, and Jesus sets you free from the demands of the law. So he gently but convincingly shows that sonship exempts you from liability. That's beautiful, right? But then we get to this part in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, the tax collectors, the leaders of the day, the government, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, Peter, cast a hook, take up the first fish that comes, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. 
Take that and give that to them for me and for you. Now, this is interesting. Um, Although Jesus was above the law, exempt from the law, Scripture tells us he places himself under the law, um, that um, offense would be given by non-payment. If he didn't pay the tax, it would cause a hindrance, an offense, between him and the tax collectors, between him and the leaders, between him and the people who did not yet know he was the Messiah and needed to know he was the Messiah. I don't have to, but I will, is what Jesus said. Now, what's interesting, Jesus says, Peter, go fishing. How did Peter generally fish? How did people fish in that day? With nets, right? They'd go in their boats, they'd cast a huge net, they'd pull in the net, they'd have the fish. If you've never watched this done, you can YouTube um, a video of ancient biblical fishing tactics. People still practice it. Fascinating to watch how they do this, okay? It's absolutely amazing how they do it by hand. I've never... Mind blown to watch how they haul in those fish, okay? Needless to say, Jesus doesn't say, go take a net and get in a boat and bring in a lot of fish and search through all of the fish and hope you find one that has a coin in its mouth. This is the one and only time in Scripture, the one and only mention in the New Testament of fishing with a hook, a single hook, on a single line, the Messiah, the Lord of the entire earth, is demonstrating his ability to work things out. And he says, Peter, go take one line, one hook, put it in the Sea of Galilee, take the first fish that bites, open its mouth, there will be the payment for the taxes for you and for me. Now that's just really a cool miracle. Um, God can provide for the payment, a single fish. So Peter fished with nets, but he took that one line. And of all of the fish in the sea, all of the fish in the sea, one fish bit the hook. The fish with the coin. Now, um, this is um, a hand artist drawing of um, the ancient version of the tilapia that lived in the Sea of Galilee. This, sea is, or this fish is now called Peter's fish, okay? You'll find it in the Sea of Galilee. They call it Peter's fish because the markings on this tilapia look like handprint coming up the side of the fish. Just a little fun fact for you, okay? Not really significant to the story. Just thought it was cool. That's Peter's fish, St. Peter's fish. Now, the coin that was in the fish's mouth is the important part. The coin that was in the fish's mouth, bad picture, is a silver shekel. That's different than a half shekel. Half shekel, whole shekel. What's the difference? It's twice as much, okay? It's twice as much. This silver shekel is twice as much as the, as the tax that is due for one person. So not only did the fish bring up enough tax for Jesus, the fish brought up enough tax for Jesus and Peter. Jesus led by example here. The, um, the thing that he did was he did something he didn't have to, but he did it willingly. I don't have to, but I will. I am going to pay my own tax, Jesus said, and I'm going to pay your tax, Peter, because you can't pay it. You're poor too. I am going to pay your debt 
for you. As children of God, we have an obligation and a responsibility to follow the example of Jesus. To relinquish the freedom and the privileges that we have in Christ when they come in conflict with the ministry of redemption in the lives of other people. I want to say that one more time. As followers of Christ, we have an obligation to relinquish our freedoms and privileges when they conflict with the ministry of the redemption of other people. When living our life in freedom will hinder our ability to reach someone for Jesus, we must say, I don't have to, but I will. We must learn to lay aside some of our freedoms to reach other people. Let me recap the story in this way. A financial debt was owed, right? A tax, six months late. Jesus was exempt from this tax, but he paid it anyway. He didn't have to, but he did. Peter was not exempt, and he couldn't pay, but Jesus paid for him. Does that sound like something? Let's go this way. A sin debt was owed. Okay? A sin debt was owed. Jesus is exempt from sin. He's sinless. He does not owe debt. He has no sin. We, on the other hand, are not exempt. We have a great debt that we owe. A great sin debt that has piled up against us. But... Jesus paid for our debt on the cross of Calvary. And by doing so, Jesus purchased our freedom in the most expensive transaction to have ever occurred on the planet. Now, in, when, when you read the book of Exodus and that passage that talks about the coin for the ransom and how that developed over time, the, the terms that they use in the, the full passage of Exodus there, uh, the ransom term that they use is a, it's a commerce term it's um, to buy something back from, to pay the high price for, to, um, uh, to reclaim something that was lost but is now found. It's that kind of term, something that you need to get back, but it costs you money, so you pay and you can have it back. This is the term that is used when Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. He is paying a sin debt for us. He is making a transaction with God in our place where we couldn't pay, but... He could, and he didn't have to, but he did. And there's a beautiful example there. We are freed then from the law in Jesus' sacrifice. We are freed from the burden of our sins, past, present, and future. We are freed to live a holy life. We are freed to follow Jesus and to see more clearly sin and holiness, and in that, to choose holiness. The Spirit of God fills us up and says, I want less of this and I want more of this. It's a beautiful thing, this freedom that we have in Christ. But we must not use our freedom in Christ as an excuse to avoid the world. We must not use our freedom in Christ as an excuse to pick fights with unbelievers. We must not use our freedom in Christ to be a jerk for Jesus. Hmm? Right? How often do we find ourselves getting upset with people who just can't get it? Why don't they get it? Why do they act that way? Why don't they do this? Why don't they do what we do? 
We even do it in our own body as, as Christians. We turn on one another and go, I thought they loved Jesus. Why don't they act better? We must not use our freedom in that way. We must do what Jesus did and look and go, how can I help in this situation? How can I put my arms under someone's shoulders? How can I come alongside someone who doesn't know better? How can I, instead of ostracizing unbelievers or people who are struggling, how can I meet them where they are at? I don't have to do that, but I will do that. That's what we should be saying. We must learn the humility of our lowly Lord. It says in Philippians, um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus gives this to you, this mind, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped at, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, not even an easy death, a really difficult death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How does that happen? How does every knee bow and every tongue confess? We learn the humility of Jesus. We learn that humility where we empty ourselves of the freedom we've been given and we say, I don't have to, but I will. I'll set aside this portion of my life. Well, I have the freedom to do certain things and not do certain things, but I'm going to choose specifically to engage in a different way. You don't have to. Here's Jesus' life. He came to be baptized, though he was without sin. He washed the feet of his disciples, including the one who would betray him. Beautiful humility. He paid the temple dues, even though he was exempt. He paid the ransom for every soul, even though he was the son of God. The freedom that Christ calls us to, calls us to a greater degree of humble holiness than we might ultimately realize in the moment. We are to sacrifice what we could have so that we can build relationships with others that are fruitful for the gospel. I sacrifice my comfort even though I could have it so that others might know the gospel. I sacrifice my finances so that others can know the gospel. I sacrifice my time so that others might know the gospel. And it plays out in a multitude of ways. Some people go overseas. Some people serve in the nursery, right? Some people come early to get the building ready. And some people stay late to clean it up. Some people go to the grocery store and just can't help but talk about Jesus to the person that is in line next to them. In our freedom, we have the responsibility to live at peace with others. This means not making an offense. This is why Jesus said, so that we don't make offense with these folks, we're going to pay these temple dues. We have a responsibility to live at peace with others, if it is possible. So long as it depends on me, I'll live at peace with everyone. That's difficult, to live at peace with everyone, right? <laughs> if it is possible, and I believe it is, because Jesus says it is. Jesus says we can have that. That mind and that heart which is in him, which he gives to us, it is possible. And so long as it is possible, so long as it depends on me, I'll live at peace with everyone. I will do whatever I can 
to not make an offense where I don't need to. This doesn't mean be a pushover and let everyone tell you what they think about Jesus. Hold fast to your gospel. But it means don't go intentionally looking for the fight. Don't go intentionally saying, you're a sinny sinner and I'm going to be a jerk for Jesus. You should love him. It doesn't work that way. If it is possible, so long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And by doing so, win as many possible people into the kingdom that you can. The weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Right? Um, Let me read this entire verse for you because I think it might be important to hear the entire thing. 1 Corinthians 9. 19 through 23. I thought I'd marked it, but I hadn't here. 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, Paul says, he understands the freedom Christ has given him. He's exempt from those things that he was once bound to. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, which means He submitted himself to the laws even though he didn't have to so that he might win those under the law. To those outside the law, he became like one outside the law. He didn't sin. That's not what he's saying. But he went and he hung out with people who didn't follow the law. He made friends with them so that he might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. He doesn't do this selfishly. He does this for the good of them, for the glory of God, and the hope that one day I may share with them all, all people, that all knees would bow, all tongues would confess, All scripture speaks to this one story, that Christ has set us free and that in our freedom, we are to use it for the good of others. This is the quote that took me the most of all of the studying that I did this week. There's this one sentence that I kept coming back to. It was in a commentary. I don't even know the name of the commentator. It says this, while sonship has its advantages, they are to be sacrificed to bring other people to Christ. While sonship has its advantages, they are to be sacrificed to bring other people to Christ. What good is it if we are Christians in a holy huddle all the days of our life and we yet never sacrifice anything to see people come to Christ? While sonship has its advantages, they are to be sacrificed to bring others to Christ. I don't have to, but I will. I don't have to, but I will. This week, where can you say, I don't have to, but I will? Where can you say, I have freedom. I can go the extra mile, and I will. Where can you say, I don't have to, but I will? In that, you will find a connection with the ministry of Jesus in your own heart and mind that is freeing and beautiful and leads other people to Christ. It's redemptive, and it's the model that Jesus set for us. It doesn't have to do with taxes. 
has everything to do with the freedom that he has made you free for. Go and use that freedom accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we recognize your word says that you are our father and that we are your children. And if we are your children, then we are exempt from the burdens and the demands of the law. And in doing so, we also recognize we're called to a higher standard. It's not that we're free to a lesser standard. We're free to a higher standard. One that demands more sacrifice, more time, more energy. If in our freedom we just sit as bumps on a log, we are not being free as you have called us to be free. Lord, would you help us this week recognize the freedom that we have. Recognize the privileges that we have. Recognize the beauty of being in your kingdom. And then, Lord, would you help us find ways to sacrifice those things for the good of your name and the good of the people around us who don't yet know you? Help us become poor for the poor. Help us become weak for the weak. Help us become rich for the rich. Help us become needy for the needy. Help us become like the Jew for the Jew. Help us become like outside the law. Father, you did the greatest thing for us. You did it for us an example. You were the one who said, they've got a debt they can't pay, and they don't know any better. I'm going to adopt them, and I'm going to pay it for them. Jesus, if you lived in today's culture, you might just say, pay it forward. Father, help us pay it forward. You paid it all for us. Help us help others see that you paid it all for them too. And we'll give all the glory and honor to you as we see more and more people confess you as Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.